We are in a short series uh, last week, this week, and next week called Thinkful, where we want to focus on thinking about the fullness of God, and that causes us to be thankful. The more you think of what God has done and think on who he is, that it stirs in our hearts a remembrance that also stirs gratitude and thanksgiving. And last week we discussed discontentment and how it sneaks in by us forgetting what God has already done, forgetting who God is, and forgetting our true home, and forgetting our true purpose. And when we allow those truths to drift out of our view, we lose sight of all the many reasons uh, that we have to be grateful. And how a lot of times we'll allow the ungodliness of discontentment to seep into our hearts because we think, I mean, it's not really a big deal. It's one of those sins that we go, yeah, I mean, it's not like I'm really hurting anybody by this. It's just stuff happening in my mind. And so we'll pacify it and be okay with it and just go, it's not that big of a deal. When last week, what we read out of Jude really showed us that these are things that are given as descriptors for those who are called ungodly. And scripture. And I want to turn one more place this morning to just kind of solidify that a little bit further. In Romans chapter 1, the opening of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, he has just like in the letter of Jude, uh, in Romans chapter 1, he's really talking about just the same way in those sections about people who are ungodly. Romans chapter 1 and verse 21 saying this For although they knew God, talking about having knowledge of who God is, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their minds or in their thinking and, in, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This passage comes as part of a, a passage where it's talking about people who are ungodly. Remember the passage last week in June where four, or Jude four times it said ungodly in their ungodliness. These ungodly people, ungodly. It's like, we get it. <laughs> ungodly. And also this passage here, what we, what we can do is we can think, oh, people who have done a bad thing. And so we go, oh, being unthankful or being discontent, that's a form of ungodliness. And so we should really fight against that. And although that is true, the ungodly people that are being talked about in Jude and in the opening chapter of Romans are essentially people that don't know God. They're people who are unregenerate in their heart. They're people who don't have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of them, making them new creations. These are people who have not been saved. And so when we look at these descriptors like Jude, where it said they are grumblers and malcontent, Or here in Romans where it says they know God but don't honor him as God and are not thankful. And these are categories where we're thinking ungodly, where we'd be expecting things that we would consider a lot worse. Paul and Jude are saying, no, these are traits that are common with those who are ungodly, a.k.a. don't know the Lord. And that ought to confront us and jar us and make us go, well, man, I should not be okay with these attitudes in my heart and mind. When I begin to have these desires or these thoughts or these attitudes of, if I could only have that thing, 
or if I could just finally get that new car, or if I could finally get the bigger, better, nicer house, or if I could finally get that promotion or get that, that job changer, if I could finally find my special someone, if I could finally achieve X, Y, Z, whatever different thing that you think is gonna be the thing that finally makes you thankful. Ecclesiastes for 12 chapters would argue, actually, those are just pacifiers. Like what you give to the baby to say, I know you're hungry, but let's pacify that and shh. And it works for a moment until the baby realizes, wait, I'm still hungry. And we fill our lives with these things, pursuing these things, going, I have a hunger, I have a desire. And oh, here's one. Oh, there we go. Wait, that car that made me so happy isn't fulfilling me like I thought it would. Or that insert noun. Whatever it is, all those different things that we allow to create discontentment often by looking at other people and what other people have or what other people have done and we look then at ourselves and go, well, how come? Why not? God, why can't I have that? Why can't you do that for me? God, why am I in this situation? And we begin feeling discontent and unthankful, which again, Scripture uses those two adjectives to describe people that don't know the Lord. And that ought to make us go, I should not be casual with discontentment or unthankfulness. Biblically speaking, the word ungodly is not used to communicate someone who just did an ungodly thing. It was a person who is ungodly. See, what we're going to get into the bottom line really early this week, and that is this, that thanksgiving is the essence of the Christian attitude. Being thankful, having gratitude in our hearts. I, you know how tempted I was to go, if we want to have an attitude of gratitude. It was tempting, but I was like, I'm not going to do that, but I guess I just did that, so huh. Thanksgiving is the essence of the Christian attitude. The Christian, the person who has been forgiven of much, the person who has had their sins reconciled between them and God, where they can come back to re relationship with God, the person who has received the Holy Spirit of God, literally God dwelling within us, we have reasons to be thankful, every reason, to where this ought to be the essence, essential in our Christian attitude of thanksgiving and thankfulness to the Lord. Just a few weeks ago, we had our fall fest, and it was uh, funny to see so many people extremely committed to some impressive costumes, and uh, it was really funny and fun to see, and if you weren't here and didn't see pictures, my family did Toy Story, and which means I dressed up as, of course, because of the everything about me, and, <laughs> and so I was Woody, my wife was Jessie. And Marley was Bo Peep with her staff, and Joey was Forky, because that's her favorite character, and she ran around going, trash! <laughs> if you've seen Toy Story 4, you get it. But we dressed up, uh, our family unit was from Toy Story, and my girls love dressing up. Like, if you open their closet, I'm not exaggerating, I think there's around 20 princess dresses in their closet. Now that's between two girls, 
but, uh, and no, I did not buy them 20 princess dresses. Um, we know how family can be in giving gifts, right? And so we're thankful that our girls have that stuff that they can enjoy. But our girls love, love, love to dress up like every day they want to put on a dress or put on their masks and their capes and all those different things. But at Fall Fest, it wasn't just that they were dressing up as Bo Peep and as Forky. When they saw Dad dressed up as Woody and when they saw Mom dressed up as Jesse and painted her hair red to look like Jesse, it was a whole new level of awe and wonder and joy and elation that was so interesting. Once I was fully dressed as Woody, there's a snake in my boot, I was walking around the house acting like Woody and my daughter Marley in a span of about 30 minutes, I'm not exaggerating, in about 30 minutes, probably 50 times, she hugged my leg looked up at me and said, I love you, daddy, and kept just squeezing my leg and melting my heart. If I sat down, she was kissing me and hugging me and just, I love you, daddy, like would not stop, would not stop expressing her affections that were coming up out of her heart because of the deep joy that she was feeling of like, man, not only me and Joey are dressed up, but mom and dad, we're like legit. (laughs) And she was so deeply joyful that she could not help but over and over and over and over and over and over expressing that joy that was in her heart. I feel like that's a great picture of what we as believers ought to have. Because my daughter, she just saw something that made her so extremely happy that was this deep But it caused her over and over and over to just express her affection, her love, her gratitude, kept squeezing my leg, kept squeezing my neck, kept kissing my cheek, kept telling me over and over, Daddy, I love you. She does that when she gets so excited about something. This is the essence of the attitude of the person who realizes what God has done for us. Not only what he's done for us, but similar to this metaphor that he's invited us to participate in with him. We have every reason to be thankful. And thanksgiving is the essence of the Christian attitude. Let's look at what Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in the city of Thessalonica that when he wrote this letter, he was addressing a lot of eschatological issues. That's a fancy Bible term for end times that they had a lot of questions about the second coming of Christ. They were worried that they had missed it. And also, they had a ton of their brothers and sisters in Christ who were being significantly persecuted, even to the point of death. Many people in this city of Thessalonica, many believers were being martyred, put to death, because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul, wanting to encourage them, wanting to clarify their confusion, he writes this letter to them and he covers all those things. And then after covering and clarifying all that theology, he gives them this final exhortation, kind of the final instructions, benediction, if you will. Starting in verse 12, he says this, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, 
help the weak, be patient with them all. Remember, to the people that were thinking they needed their end times theology cleared up because there were people who weren't, weren't working. They were like, Jesus is coming back, so let's just kick back and wait. He's like, no, let's admonish the idle let, to work. To the weary, let's encourage them. Let's strengthen the faint-hearted. Let's help the weak. Let's be patient with all. Verse um, Verse 16, or I'm sorry, verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And so the old adage of two wrongs don't make a right, I guess originally came from scripture here, that we don't repay evil for evil. That was terrible. Verse 16, rejoice. How often? Remember who he's writing to? People who are being persecuted for their faith. People who are having their brother and sister and killed because they believe in Jesus. And Paul has the audacity to tell them, rejoice always. He says, pray how often? Without ceasing. And here we go. Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Well, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How many times in my life as a pastor and in ministry, I've been in ministry for a long time, have I heard people really fretting and wrestling and struggling over, I just want to know what God's will for my life is. I want to know what God's will is for me. And I think people get so hung up and can drag their feet and be indecisive, feeling like they don't know what God's will is. And I feel like so many times we forget that God's leading us and guiding us and we just need to follow scripture and trust that he is leading us. Yes, we should pray that he would guide us and make clear the paths that he wants us to follow. So, uh, the scripture tells us that many are the plans that man makes in his heart, but the Lord directs his steps. And so, so many people get so hung up on, should I do this? Should I do that? Hey, Follow Jesus with all your heart and do what you feel like he's leading you to do and don't sweat over it. But so many people are missing the clear will of God that's in scripture in statements like this. I want to know, Pastor Stephen, what's the will of God for my life? Right here. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What's God's will for my life? That we rejoice always. Yeah, I know, I know, but what about, should I take this job or that job? That you'd pray without ceasing. Well, I get that, but should I marry this girl or not? That you're thankful in all circumstances. Remembering, Paul wrote this to people who were worried about if they were gonna be skewered or boiled alive or thrown to the lion's to people who are experiencing those things, he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. We're really good at giving thanks when the table is loaded with turkey and with the stuffing and all the fixings. That's the time where it's easy to give thanks because it's like, yeah, we're about to chow down. We're, it's easy to give thanks when we got the promotion or when we got the raise or when we found that special someone or on our wedding day or when we, it's easy to give thanks when everything's lining up and the stars are aligning and things are going well. You want to know what's a true marker and sign of maturity in the life of a believer? How is your thanks game when things are not going well? when you're suffering, when you're sick, when you're going through trial and tribulation, when your faith is being tested. 
Remembering James chapter one that says, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And when patience has had its perfect work, you'd be perfect, lacking nothing. How do we handle suffering? Do we cause it to go, ah, and we start looking and taking our eyes off of all the reasons we have to be thankful? In In scripture, there are, two dominant words for thanksgiving throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. There are many different words in Hebrew and in Greek um, that translate in our Bibles as thanks and thanksgiving and thankfulness and gratefulness and gratitude. Um, But as many as there are in Hebrew and Greek, there are two big ones that happen more than all the rest. In Hebrew, the word that we see most often for thanksgiving is yada, Y-D-H, yada. Uh, This word has been defined by scholars very well to say this is acknowledging what is right about God in praise and thanksgiving. Yada. Acknowledging what is right about God in praise and thanksgiving. 102 times in the Old Testament, the concept of thanks is presented. 72 out of 102 of those times is this term yada, where it is acknowledging what is right about God, acknowledging the truth of who God is, acknowledging his character with praise and thanksgiving. This is the most dominant form of thanksgiving in the Old Testament. I want to show you an example of what this might look like. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, going back to the Old Testament. First, I'm sorry, Corinthians, that's the New Testament. First Chronicles, First Chronicles chapter 16. And uh, to give you a little context of what's happening here, this is right after King Saul has died in battle. His sons have died. David has been appointed as king, the new king over Israel. He and his mighty men go into Jerusalem where there's Jebusites who have taken over the city. They go in, take over the city, reclaim it for Israel, uh, establish it as the city of David, the city of the king. And with that, uh, David also goes out into battle to have another whole, ba- another whole battle uh, with the Philistines to conquer them. And then after that, takes the ark and brings it back into the city of David where it rightfully belongs, where the ark of the covenant, which holds the presence of God in the Old Testament, this is symbolic of the presence of God coming back into the midst of the people of God. And so David, so ecstatic, so overjoyed, so overwhelmed with happiness and thanksgiving, leads this procession of the Ark of the Covenant into the city and he's dancing and singing and shouting and rejoicing, making a fool of himself to the extent that his wife says, oh wow, you've really made everyone proud today with your behavior, haven't you? What a mighty king of Israel we have. She mocks him and she's punished for that. She's barren the rest of her life. But David, celebrating the presence of God, returning to the people of God in the city of God, responds this way. First Chronicles 16, starting in verse 8. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Yada, that word thanks. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. 
Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. I had to underline that one because I just loved it. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Amen. Remember the wondrous works that he has done. His miracles and the judgments he uttered. Offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. This land that they just brought the, Can- the, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant back into. Verse 19, when you were few in number of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account saying, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. So he, he in this Thanksgiving starts recounting what God has done, going, man, here's all the things that God has promised. Here's all the things that God has done. And from that, it just overflows again into this Thanksgiving we're about to see in verse 23, sing to the Lord all the earth, tell of his salvation from day Today, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established and it shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks, Yada. Give thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That is the tone of Old Testament yada, thanksgiving to the Lord, declaring his wonders, preaching and reminding ourselves of what he has done and letting that again just stoke a fire to where we're declaring again his goodness, his faithfulness, and his steadfast love. The Greek New Testament word that is the big word for Thanksgiving in the New Testament is the Greek word eucharisteo. Eucharisteo is in the New Testament 38 times, which is more than any of the other instances that are rendered as thanks or thanksgiving, thankfulness, etc., This word 38 out of 38 times, that means every time, 
that it is mentioned, it is mentioned to point to a thanksgiving that is given to God. It is thanksgiving that is directly aimed at God. What does this tell us? The most common thanksgiving that's shown in the New Testament shows us that God deserves a kind of thanks unlike anyone else. In fact, that's something I want you to notice today, that God deserves thankfulness in a way that no one else does. Do we deserve thankfulness when we help each other, love each other, serve each other? Absolutely. Our family has been so tremendously blessed by the church family as we've gone through some struggles as of late. And uh, we are thankful and we should be thankful to you. But every single instance of this word Eucharisteo is always a thanksgiving that is directed at God. And although we might do things for one another that deserve certain levels of gratitude, what God has done and who God is warrants a level of thanksgiving and gratitude that is not paralleled by the thanksgiving we give to each other. A different kind of thanksgiving is warranted there. Now, you hear that term Eucharisteo, and if you grew up in any sort of liturgical worshiping background, you would hear that Greek word Eucharisteo, and it would probably remind you a lot of the Eucharist. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, this word Eucharisteo is the word thanks that is found in the account of Jesus at the Last Supper with his uh, apostles, his 12 disciples, as he is observing the Passover with them, having the Last Supper, ordaining what would be called the Eucharist, which is an act of what? It's an act of worship as we remember the body through bread. We remember the body broken for us, the juice, the wine that we drink, remembering the blood that was shed for us and that we would give thanks. See, this is really a gospel issue. Thanksgiving is a gospel issue. At the Last Supper with his disciples, Jesus ordained the Eucharist or communion as a way for his followers to remember, to honor, to worship together in thanksgiving for the body broken and the blood shed. And because of this, these are the reasons that God deserves Eucharisteo, thanksgiving, gratitude, in a way that is different from the thanks that we give to each other. Now, there's a couple of stories really quick that I want to hit in Scripture, a couple of accounts to help us see some kind of ways that people have responded differently um, to opportunities to be thankful. Let's go to the New Testament, uh, back to the New Testament, to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, this is an account of Jesus. I'll start reading in verse 11. It says, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance. This was what was mandated by law, by God's law, that if anyone was a leper, this is the original social distancing. They had to stay 50 paces away from everyone else. If you had leprosy, You had to stay at least 50 paces away from everyone else. You had to wear torn clothes and you had to yell, unclean, unclean. Man, what if we had to do that today? Sheesh. When they had leprosy, it was so dangerous, so terrible, so destructive, it was essentially a death sentence. If you had leprosy, your flesh was going to rot off until you died. It was terrible. Smells, pain, discomfort, 
loneliness and isolation, living in leper colonies outside of the cities. So 10 lepers stood at a distance, verse 13, and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. This was actually the prescription of what you would do if you were somehow miraculously cleansed of leprosy. If you were cleansed, you would go to the priests and show yourself as cleansed. They would call you cleansed and you could reintegrate into society. These lepers with this skin condition, Jesus says, go and do the thing that you would do as if you were healed. And watch what happens. As they went, they were cleansed. Verse 15, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back praising God with a loud voice and fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Okay, Luke, why does that matter? It's a random kind of meaningless point, but that ought to help us see something that Luke's pointing out there too. This is the one out of the group that it would have seemed less likely that this person would have given thanks to God. But this is the one person out of the group that realized the gravity of what had just happened, what had been done for him that he couldn't do, saving him from his inevitable destruction. And he felt compelled to go back to that source with thanksgiving. Verse, or continuing there in verse 16, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. If you want to highlight and underline that term made you well, we'll revisit that in a minute. But what can we see from this? That oftentimes unthankfulness comes from a sense of entitlement. One of them felt that what was given to him was enough that he should go back with gratitude, throw himself on the floor at Jesus' feet and praise him and thank him and give glory to God. The other, I'm sure we're elated, I'm sure we're excited, but they just went on about their business. They went on probably going to show their family, excited, but they didn't feel the need to come back and thank the source. Let's look at another passage here, flipping back a few chapters earlier, Luke chapter 7. This is an account where Jesus was invited to have dinner at a Pharisee's house, at which those points are always like, oh, this should be fun. Verse 36, Luke chapter 7, 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, pause, in case you didn't know, that's a term for prostitute in Bible days. A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And what we can know from the other accounts in the other gospels of this story is that this was spikenard. It was an extremely expensive perfume that she would have spent a lot of money to get. And standing behind him at his feet, wiping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them, or weeping, I'm sorry, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, 
the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, man, if this man knew, or if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. He's going, if he really was a prophet, he would know that this woman's a prostitute, and she is ritually unclean, and therefore at touching him, he is now ritually unclean. He wouldn't be okay with this. He would not be permitting this if he was a prophet. And Jesus answering said to him, he knew his thoughts, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And he goes into a story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, that's about a year and a half's wages. And the other, 50 denarii, which is about two months' wages. So just to have perspective there, he loaned money, someone, a year and a half worth of wages. So think about your salary and what you would make in a year and a half. And the other was 50 denarii, which is the equivalent of about two months' wages. So what would you make in two months? So two months' wages versus a year and a half worth of wages. Verse 42, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Imagine if you had a year and a half's wages worth of debt. Let's just go median guess here on 50 grand. That's $150,000 of debt. If you had $150,000 of debt that you could not repay, and that debtor said, forgiven, how would you respond? You'd be pretty grateful. You'd be elated. You'd be high-fiving. You'd be jumping. You'd be celebrating. You'd be hugging. You'd be something like that. Even still, two months' worth of wages. That's enough to get excited about too, but there's a point that's being made here. He said, when they could not repay, he canceled the debt for both. Now, which of them will love him more? Verse 43, Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom his can he canceled the larger debt. I guess. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Saying, you have done nothing to acknowledge the deity that's sitting at your table. But this sinful woman has paid greatly, kissing my feet, washing my feet with her hair and her tears, anointing my feet. Verse 47, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began saying among themselves, well, who is this? Who even forgives sins? Because they know only God can do that. And that's the point Jesus is trying to make. Who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go 
in peace. There are two different types of people at this table. There are people who feel entitled, who don't feel that they need to thank Jesus, who don't feel that they need to offer gratitude of the cost of the spikenard anointing his feet. And there is a woman who recognizes how much debt she has against a holy God. And she comes in the room and begins tears with her tears and hair, wiping his feet clean. And then with her costly oil, anointing his feet in worship and gratitude and acknowledging the man who was God sitting at the table. And the Pharisees sit there in their self-righteous indignance going, who is this that he thinks he can forgive sins? And he says, you're saved. Your faith has saved you. And it's interesting, this term here that is uh, your faith has saved you is the same exact Greek phrase from chapter 17 that he told the leper, your faith has cleansed you. It's the same phrase. It's translated cleansed you or been translated in our English here in that verse for the lepers that your faith has cleansed you. And in this account, the same exact phrase is used to say your faith has saved you. Listen, gratitude is a gospel issue. Because leprosy in scripture from Old Testament to New Testament is given as a figure, as an image, as a symbol for sin. The same way that leprosy rots and corrodes and deteriorates the flesh until ultimate death and destruction, our sin rots and corrodes and deteriorates our soul until we are ultimately destroyed by it. There is symbol here. And to the Pharisee, he's saying, hey, bud, you don't realize, you think you don't have reason to be grateful, and you're looking at this girl, she has all the reason, she recognizes the debt that is being paid for her, and you're sitting here, your debt has opportunity to be forgiven too, but you don't think it's that much, and so because of that, you're not thankful. And this girl is given everything that she's got because she knows how much she's indebted. Unthankfulness comes from a sense of entitlement. Just like the Israelites in the Old Testament, after they're set free from 400 years of Egyptian slavery by the spectacular power of God, the 10 plagues that were done on Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, all these miracles, and they get into the wilderness for a little while and start going, I think we had it better in Egypt, actually. And start going, ah, oh, this bread stuff that you're making appear on the ground every morning. Manna, what is it? I mean, yeah, it satisfies our hunger, but I'm getting kind of tired of it. It's a little bland. Could we maybe have some meat of some sort, God? The discontentment, the ungratitude, the, the unthankfulness that came out from this sense of entitlement, feeling like God owes us. Guys, let me tell you, God owes us nothing. He owes us Nothing. In fact, if we are owed anything, what are the wages of sin that scripture teaches us? Death. We are in debt like the girl of the city. We are in bondage like those who have leprosy. And if we can't see that, we cannot have the gratitude. But if we see that, and recognize what has been made available to us in Jesus Christ, what has been done for us, who God is. It stirs an awe and a wonder and a laying down attitude and disposition of I'm willing to use my tears to wash those feet and break open my expensive oil to worship him and thank him because I know how much debt I have. And if we sit here thinking, I'm pretty good, 
I'm not like the girl of the city. I mean, I go to church. I give. I do these good things. We will be just like the Pharisee who's sitting there looking at others going, ooh. Instead of recognizing the debt collector has made payment that ought to cause us to rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances. But we have a tendency to take our eyes off of what God has done and what he has made available to us. And like the Israelites, we go, but there's other people eating meat back in Egypt. You know, it's pretty hot out here in the wilderness. I know you told us about this promised land that's coming, but I haven't seen it yet. And Moses is winding us all through the desert like this. And I know, you know, you sent water out of a rock one time. That was pretty cool. But God, really, I mean, it's got to be better than this. Should we just go back? And we forget what has been done. Giving thanks is a gospel issue. If the gospel is in your heart, if the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for you, it ought to stir the same way that my little Marley could not help but keep on saying, I love you, Daddy. I love you, hugging, squeezing, kissing. When, when you have had God, your Father, wipe away your sins that are against the holy God, making payment for your sins with Jesus Christ to welcome you close to him, not only to welcome you close, but to fill you with his spirit. When that has happened, like my daughter to the Father, we ought to be going, Daddy, I love you. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No matter what happens, if you never answered another prayer, if I suffered the rest of my life, what you have done is enough for me to use every breath and every ounce of energy living a life of gratitude. Living in light of what God has done for us, we dare not treat Christ's sacrifice as a common thing. Living a life of golf clapping, tipping the cap and nodding. Thank you, Jesus. Thanks, God. Oh, God, we thank you for this day. These empty platitudes that are truths, but our heart is what changes between it being a true attitude or a false platitude. Shoot, I didn't even play on that. <laughs> Where we tip the cap with a wink and a nod at the sacrifice of all sacrifices, at the payment of all payments, the redemption of the deepest corruption, the forgiveness of the highest treason, the greatest love that has ever been known, ever been shown, ever been given, ever received. We cannot respond as if this is common. We cannot respond with these heartless platitudes of generic gratitude, the size of the gift, the cost of what's given, the meaning of what's offered all determines the response that's warranted. Therefore, we must ask, what kind of gratitude did the cross warrant? What kind of gratitude did the cross warrant? I would contend that the cross warrants a gratitude that is not of this world because the gift was not of this world. There was no thing, no possession, no person, no achievement, accolade, whatever in this world that you could be given that is greater than Jesus Christ. A gratitude that makes all other pursuits secondary. A gratitude that changes possessions into tools for God's purposes and his glory. A gratitude that changes money into a means for missions. 
A gratitude that changes schedules, our schedules, into strategies of how we can do more for God's kingdom. A gratitude that changes relationships into ministries. A gratitude that changes marketplaces into fields that are white for the harvest. A gratitude that changes average Joes into singular-focused warrior messengers, ambassadors of a benevolent king of grace and truth. That's the kind of gratitude that the cross warrants. See, David was anointed king because he, and he won a battle and brought the Ark of Covenant back into its rightful place, bringing God's presence back into the midst of his people. And he sings and dances and rejoices, makes a fool of himself because God's presence is back in the midst of his people. This good King David the true and better David, Jesus, the king of kings, who did not only defeat the Philistines, defeated Satan, sin, and death, tearing the veil that was separating us from the presence of God, whereby not only does the presence of God come amidst the people, the presence of God literally comes to indwell the people of God. We literally get the Holy Spirit of God inside of us. And David gets the presence of God in the city of God, and he's going, praise God. <laughs> and we get the presence of God inside of us. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> praise you, Lord. Is he done yet? He's going a little long today. <laughs> the roast isn't going to burn, is it? What kind of gratitude does this warrant? The lepers had their rotting flesh healed and one, a Samaritan, the unworthy outcast, came back to give thanks. We have had the sin forgiven, the, the rotting soul healed. No longer do we hear, stay away, unclean. We hear, come near. You've been cleansed. Your rotten soul is cleansed, made new. Come here, close, my child, from the God of the universe. See, the problem is never that we don't have enough to be thankful for. It's that like the Israelites, we so easy, easily forget that we have everything to be grateful for. We've been delivered from captivity. We've been saved from destruction. We, he has provided for us in the desert and given a promise of a final dwelling place, a home that will be ours forever where we are with God face to face, no longer where his presence is dwelling in a tent or in a temple or even limited dwelling in our bodies, but we will be in heaven with God face to face with the unveiled full glory of God. This world can have its trinkets can keep its fleeting pleasures. It can have its acclaim and its fame and its wealth and its petty carnival prizes. It's pacifiers. Give me Jesus. Give me him forever. 
take the world. Give me Jesus and give me Jesus to the extent that I cannot help but say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Praise you. I love you. You are so good despite what I'm going through that I need to trust you with. Thank you. No matter what my bank account looks like, thank you. Even though my job stresses me out or frustrates me or I wish I had a different thing, thank you. Even though I still haven't found that other person yet that I'm waiting for to complete me, no, you have completed me and you'll bring them at the right time. Thank you. You have done everything to squash every bit of doubt of your goodness and your faithfulness in my life on the cross. I've seen it. I know it. Thank you. And while discontentment and ungratefulness are forms of forgetting, contentment and gratitude are found, rekindled, and sustained by remembering. We preach the truth to ourselves. We preach the gospel to ourselves. We remind ourselves who God is, what God has done, what God has spoken, where our true home is, and what our true purpose is. Let's be the children of God who focus on the goodness of God in the bad times, who remember the God who was able to faithfully deliver us from the oppression of sin while we're walking through the desert. Let's be the people who don't wait to see our prayers answered to be thankful, who don't wait until our financial situation improves to be thankful, who don't wait until the pain in our bodies disappears to be thankful, who don't wait till we understand every painful experience in our lives to be thankful, who don't wait till we get that new job, who don't wait until the journey gets easier. Let's be the people of God who wait for nothing to be thankful to God for everything. I invite you to stand this morning. We have every reason to be thankful. Let's sing it. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus, you can have all this world. Give me Jesus. One more time. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. God, I pray that you would help all of us see the truth of who you are, what you've done, what you've promised, our true purpose, our true home, that we would not get distracted or discontent or unthankful by circumstances. But like Paul to the Philippians, we would remember that we have everything we need in Christ Jesus, every reason to be thankful, every reason to praise you, every reason to rejoice at all times. And I pray that you would anchor those truths in our heart, that we would be such a grateful people that, that, that unbelievers would look at us and go, what's wrong with them? 
How can they be so happy? How can they have so much joy? How can they be so thankful? It's because we have Jesus. And if we never had anything else, that's enough. To spend every breath, every ounce of energy with thankfulness and gratitude for the good of your people and to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.